Good morning. Happy Sabbath. We are delighted that you are joining us once again as we gather and open scripture together. Now, we do what we always do at the beginning of our time together, and that is reach out to one of you, our viewers, and our faithful, faithful commenters out there. And this week we got, as we always do, a slew of emails. Keep those emails coming. Keep those questions coming. J-O at L-O-U-C dot O-R-G or M Mendez at L-O-U-C dot O-R-G. And we'd love to engage with you in this way during our broadcast. Today's question slash comment comes from Carrie Arnott, and Carrie lives in Vancouver, Washington. Carrie begins with giving us uh, kudos and just a very delightful comment on how we have shared with them in the lesson. But uh, Carrie also has a comment regarding one of the things we talked about last week. If you remember, we spent some time talking about the sons of God and the daughters of men and the B'nai Elohim and that construction. And what we did was we simply gave you a slew of different interpretations out there as to who the sons of God are. Carrie noted that for Ellen White in Patriarchs and Prophets, the idea of who these sons of God are is clear. They would have been the lineage uh, of faithful people that continue to worship Yahweh. And she he notes uh, this in page 81 and 82. I'm just going to read a little bit about what Ellen White says in Patriarchs and Prophet. She says, For some time the two classes remained separate, the race of Cain spreading from the place of their first settlement, dispersed over the plains and the valleys, where the children of Seth had dwelt, and the later, in order to escape from their contaminating influence, withdrew to the mountains, and there made their home. So long as the separation continued, they maintained the worship of God in its purity. And so... Uh, Carrie notes that for Ellen White, the question of who these sons of God are is clear. They are descendants of Seth. Carrie, thank you for reminding us of that beautiful passage in Patriarchs and Prophets. And as you know, the only thing we did last week was we said that is one of the viable interpretations as to who the sons of God are. But we also believe that it is our duty to engage with the broader Christian world and with the world of scholarship, even within our own church, that continues to have these questions. So today, as we think about the flood and the sons of God, the daughters of man, I have somebody here, a friend of mine, as Pastor Joey isn't here with us, I have a friend of mine to come and fill in. So Pastor Philip, um, hey. what are your thoughts about <clears throat> this idea of the flood? Man, well, I I do have to say it's so interesting that a couple of years ago there was a movie that came out talking about the flood called Noah. And it was produced by... Um, a director who had been fascinated with the flood for almost like, I think he said 15 or 20 years since he was in high school. Reading about the biblical account of the flood, he used extra biblical sources, you could say, or Septuagint, not Septuagint, but um, the Book of Enoch and others to kind of supplement it. And it really showed the flood in a strange way that most people who are Christians had been Christians for a long time and maybe haven't read the Book of Enoch would have been just like, whoa, this is something else. But I think when, when Hollywood, when culture tries to tell a biblical story, instead of completely canceling them, I think we should go in and engage, affirm what could potentially be meaningful that they portrayed, hey, address some things that you don't agree with, but use it as a launching pad for discussion. So when that movie came out talking about the flood, I was I was actually thrilled to have discussions with atheists, non-believers. Hey, have you seen that movie? No, I have. Well, let me, it's interesting. Let's watch it. You know, let's look at this. You know, and and so many good conversations. I actually, had people come to church, um, part of my uh, youth initiative with that. So, I think we need to be open, as you were saying, to discussing with a broader context about some of these biblical themes. Because these are some of the stories that our culture actually knows about to some mm -hmm. degree. Hey, there was a flood. People have heard about that. They maybe don't know the nuances of the story 
That's why it, it can be dangerous when culture tells a biblical story. They twist it, right? Mm -hmm. But that's a beautiful space for us to intersect mm -hmm. and tell a truthful story in the midst of the conversation as opposed to saying, you can't tell those stories. Mm. You're not allowed to be part of that. Mm -hmm. um, it was one more thing. Well, do you have a comment? And then no, I, have I think, I think you're, you're preaching now. So okay, I'll keep I know going. better than to interrupt a preacher <laughs> when he's on a roll. I'll keep going. But it was interesting. My wife and I uh, went up to the base camp of Mount Everest at one time when we were doing student missions back in college. And on the way up, we encountered this guide who was leading 12 other climbers to go to a peak of 22,000 feet. It was an amazing thing they were doing. But we happened to stop at the same little tea house, as they're called, these little shacks. Uh, barely, not much there. And you eat there and you sleep in a little uh, spot. And he heard I'm a pastor student. I was in seminary. And he said, I know everything about the Bible. I said, oh, interesting. Tell me about the Bible. He said, well, well, Noah gave, well, Noah was given a black box to talk to God through. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, that's interesting. We kept a conversation going on his ridiculous <laughs> ideas. And then I said, you know, I'd love for you to show me that in the Bible. Here's my little travel Bible. Man, come bring that back to my room. I would love to talk about it a little bit more. He comes back to the to my room. He knocks. Hey, Phil, you know, I don't know what kind of Bible you have. You must have the abridged version mm -hmm. or something because all those other things that I read about, they're not in here. Mm. But that's interesting. Let's talk about it more. And oh, I was wow. cracking up laughing. I have the abridged version. <laughs> but I think there's room for us to have dialogues that are different and unique with people while still being gracious, even when they are not according to scripture, mm. when they have their own ideas to it and help lead them gently mm. to truth. So, Phil, that's such a great comment. I love the fact that you just introduced the fact that you were camping at the base of Everest. Um, that's the part of the story that I consider amazing um, because I know your heart for evangelism. And so I know you're going to evangelize anywhere you go. Uh, what I loved about Kerry's comment is that's exactly what he's doing. He is he knows where he stands. Yeah. He has a clearly defined identity as an Adventist. He's yeah. read uh, the writings of Sister White. And so he is very passionate about where he stands. And I think that's laudable. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he shared those convictions with such grace and such kindness really just breathed new life into me this mm. week because so often our conversations, particularly when we disagree on something, not saying that I disagree with Terry, but when we do disagree with something uh, or we hear something we don't like, we do what you just said. We tend to cancel. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think part of what we are called to do then is simply to look at ways in which we can say, hey, how can we have a productive, grace-oriented yeah. discussion? Yeah. So. Where do we find agreement and where can we build from that? Mm. But then being willing to talk about the differences gracefully. Mm -hmm. I think where I've been, not hurt personally, but where I've been just bummed. Uh, I've been frustrated in conversations where there are diverging opinions when people storm out. Mm -hmm. I remember being in a board one time and one of the people that was in the board just vehemently disagreed so hard about an issue we were talking and they stood up, slammed their hands and walked out. Mm. You know, And it's just like, man, you, you stop the conversation mm -hmm. immediately um, even though you're trying to state where you stand mm -hmm. very, very convincingly it becomes just more detrimental yeah. to the conversation because now everyone's closed off yeah. and no one will talk further. Wow. So. Yeah, and that's, I think, I think when we when we talk about religion, the reality is we're talking about ideas that people hold very firmly and mm -hmm. they're very passionate mm -hmm. about that. And that's what we love about, about faith. I think to allow ourselves that experience with uh, the person that you found in the tea in the tea house where you're saying show me 
And let's have a conversation where I'm not ridiculing you. Yeah. I am simply eager to hear your story and yeah. to learn. And so that really holds a sacred space for us to share our stories. And I think that's where growth happens. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited right now to talk with you about a creating and holding the sacred space where we talk about another really well-known story in scripture, which is uh, the one that we find in our lesson for today, which comprises the last half of chapter nine all the way to chapter 11 of the book of Genesis. But before we do that, friends, uh, take a break. Let's uh, ask God to join us. Again, keep your comments coming. They, As we said earlier, they live, they breathe life into us. So uh, can you join me for prayer? God, thank you so much for the space that you have for us to converse thoughtfully mm -hmm. about faith. Yes. And we just pray that as we open this conversation, that you be present, that mm -hmm. you moderate, and that you fill us with your spirit, for we pray in your name. Amen. 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 So, Phil, we started talking about the book of Noah, <clears throat> mm -hmm. or the story of Noah and the flood, yeah. which is the Toledot of Noah. And um, we talked yesterday about how the rainbow, or last week, we about how the rainbow represents a agreement that God has because the the image of a rainbow is an actual bow pointed upwards, mm. and so God is putting His weapons away and saying, mm. "I want to I want to have peace with humankind." And it's the story of the flood ends in in this really hopeful place, and then as has happened so many times, and we're getting used to this rhythm in the Book of Genesis. We have the story that begins our lesson for this week, which is found in verse 18 of the ninth chapter, that deals with uh, Noah's three sons and a curse that happens mm -hmm. uh, to Canaan, uh, the son of Ham. Now, you, I think, noticed, and we were talking off camera about some of the links um, between this story and the echoes that you have in Eden. Uh, in Eden. Yeah. Uh, can you expound a, a bit on that? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating how this story has both fruit, mm -hmm. it has blessing, it has curse, it has nakedness, and it has a human dimension of, of individuals interacting together um, in a way that's unique to both stories mm -hmm. and God kind of being present, speaking into it as mm -hmm. well. So in this, we find a lot of unfortunate echo from, from that painful story, but it ends with also blessing mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be worthwhile talking just a little bit about those similarities uh, just for a moment. So we find that there is fruit mm -hmm. and you can say both of them saw that the fruit was good for the eyes, mm -hmm. but the difference being that God gave the fruit of the grape to Noah to use to, uh, hey, enjoy. Mm -hmm. Now, Noah, maybe you could say went too far, yeah, right? Um, getting drunk with the wine, but he was still given that fruit by God. Now, the difference is there in, in Genesis 1 and 2, 3. The fruit was there, but it was more of a test mm -hmm. for Adam and Eve. So that's a difference. Someone might say, hey, well, no, they weren't fully similar. Okay, that's true. Okay, that's the main difference I see. The usage of the fruits. Right. And they can be both used, but not in the first story in the same way. In the second one, you can misuse it. Yeah. I just gave my daughter some grapes to take to school. <laughs> you know, not a bad thing. But I think we have to look at now just the curse. So what happened? Mm -hmm. Uh, Ham sees his father, he got drunk, and he's naked in his tent. Mm -hmm. And instead of covering his dad, instead of doing something right, some interaction happens that displeases not only his dad, but his brothers as well, and mm -hmm. they're all angry. So here you have to see there are ways in which we have to interact with wrongs, evils mm. that occur in people's life in a in a beneficial way or mm. not so, or a helpful way. So here, you know, I've had encounters with young adults where, man, in in high school, I remember a friend, he got so drunk, he's passed out on the floor. He could have been left there by his buddies, you know. Instead, they cleaned him up, they picked him up and put him in a car and took him home, mm -hmm. right? So there are ways in which we deal with conflict and difficult situations that you can help 
or you can just really lead down right. a bad path. So here you see him. Wow, he disrespected his father uh, and his brothers. And now a curse falls upon mm. not only him, but his children. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And I think that that's why I found the idea of these similarities. And we talked a, a little bit with the flood about echoes of Genesis 1 and creation in reverse. And now you have uh, in the second part of chapter 9, echoes of the fall in reverse. And what I mean by that is I think you're right. There's this idea of the fruit, but the similarity is linked even before that. Mm. In verse 20, it says that Noah was a man of the soil. Adam literally means the man of the soil. Oh. And so there's there's kind of this connection already just linguistically between Noah and Adam. So mm. just as Adam was placed in the garden to till the fields, Noah now is placed in this new uh, garden to till. Uh, there is some sort of abuse that happens with the fruit. Um, and Noah is now naked. And again, this idea of nudity in the ancient Near East related to ideas of idol worship and sexual promiscuity within uh, the Canaanite and Ugaritic uh, religions, and also deep, deep-seated issues of shame. Mm -hmm, we, we, mm -hmm. we talked about this right, uh, right. when we talked about the fall, that there's some deep-seated issues of shame. And I think what what I stay with from, from a little bit of what you said is sin always seems to produce shame. Mm, yeah. And the way in which God reacts to shame is by offering grace. Mm. Uh, so Adam and Eve are naked and God covers them. Mm -hmm. And the language is very similar to what Noah's two sons do yeah. when he is feeling shame. Yeah. So it's it's a matter of two children acting in the same way mm. that Yahweh acted mm. when when confronted with sin vis-a-vis -vis the uh, the way that comes natural to us mm. when when we're confronted with with someone else's sin mm. and typically when we're confronted with someone else's sin is to either exploit and weaponize their shame yeah or to engage in really vindictive and vitriolic yeah. Use blaming. It against them. Exactly. And, we oh, start yeah. blaming them. Oh, yeah. We dehumanize <laughs> them as people. Yeah. We yeah. go and we make fun of them. And yeah. that seems yeah. to be what yeah. Ham is doing, isn't it? Oh, I got to bring in a practical thing here. So in marriage counseling sessions, you have couples that are talking to you as a pastor. And, I, and this happens every once in a while with me. <laughs> I'm hearing a couple discuss something and all of a sudden the wife or husband will say, you remember when you did? Mm -hmm. And the wife kind of all of a sudden or husband kind of gets real quiet and they're like, wow, they just brought that up again, didn't mm -hmm. they? I thought we dealt with this. Why are you using mm -hmm. this against me right now? Why is this coming out in this? Well, I just need to make sure. Well, wait a second. Come on, you know? And so I think that's a perfect example here in the Bible of the same mm -hmm. thing you use someone's sin against them. And you can't do that. That's that's not fair. Now, does it mean that the person is all of a sudden right? No, no. Right. But, but it simply means you have to allow what happened to have happened, deal with the issues that happened there, forgive, and there has to be an ob object of moving on mm -hmm. in relationship with people. Now, some people may not be safe you may not be able to get back into the same relationship with them in that same way. There might need to be some kind of distance or something going on there. Um, if it's a, for instance, issue of abuse, mm -hmm. right? Um, but in this situation, man, Ham had a different way he could have gone through it. His father shamed, but his brothers step in and do the right thing. Yeah, yeah, that's really well stated, Philip. Now notice that Ham, uh, verse 22, it says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. And we often think, well, why is it that not only Ham, but Canaan and all of the people descended from there are now cursed? And I think it, it touches on some themes that to you will sound familiar if you're a longtime viewer. First, it, touch, it touches on the issue of generational sin, right? Mm. The fact that 
often these patterns of dealing with sin that we learn and families continue propagating themselves. And so if I tend to deal with other people's shame mm. by weaponizing mm. it, chances yeah. are yeah. that I am going to create a cultural yes. environment yes. where shame is weaponized. Yeah. So that's the first thing. It's this idea of generational shame. But the second is that it's very important for us as we're talking about sin to distinguish the difference between guilt and shame. Mm. Guilt is a good thing. Guilt is a great yeah. thing. Guilt is a you, thing you that feel tells bad you bad for what you did. Don't and and I don't want to yeah. feel this way again, so I'm not going to do yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Shame, however, is not as useful because shame actually mm. eats away at your perception of yourself, yes. at your very core identity. Yeah. And shame plays on our most basic insecurities. Mm. And so when shame is weaponized against us, when mm. I take something that you've done that causes you shame because you're insecure of, about it. And then I, instead of helping you, mm -hmm. I weaponize it. Mm -hmm. I am actually doing more damage yeah. than the than the problem that you are that you are struggling yeah. with. And yeah. I think this is a beautiful example of how w the invitation of scripture is to meet shame and sin with grace mm. to own people's guilt mm. to walk people through the process of reconciliation and repentance yeah, yeah. but then to do so in a way that extends grace yeah, yeah and that is not always easy to do it isn't always easy to do but it is the best way forward if you want to preserve relationships mm -hmm. if you want to say your piece and and unload everything you've got at that person great but don't assume they'll be there later on. You can say this, uh, you might win that battle, but you lose the overall war. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what you don't want. I think of something talking about generational curses. You know, I would say what you said exactly makes sense to me. The idea of families portraying a certain characteristic that they pass on to each other by modeling. Mm -hmm. What we know about developmental psychology is Modeling is one of the most powerful tools a parent has to in, inspire a certain behavior or see an unfortunate behavior continue on in their right. child's life because the parent continues modeling a certain way of mm -hmm. life. I remember talking to a preventative medicine doctor and he, and he was saying how when he talks with families who are dealing with um, you know, weight issues, and people didn't like it, at least in his practice, when he asked, well, what did, your, what did your family eat when you were growing up? Well, what does that have to do with me not being able to? And he said, it has everything to do with it. No, I have a genetic thing. There's a gen and he said, let's talk about what you guys mm -hmm. ate together. And it was a, it's a tough one sometimes because it's like, man, I don't always eat the best. But I realized, wow, what I'm eating, I teach my children to mm -hmm. eat. So here in this story, you see Ham taught his family a generational story. Hey, this is it. And he's gossiping about something mm -hmm. and he's infecting his children, which goes on yeah. down the line. Yeah, what I what I also think is really important is that that modeling happens both ways. Mm. Um, so it's, it's a feedback loop with, that we have with modeling. And this is, I think, where uh, this book that is written in the ancient Near East is so advanced for its time. Because the typical idea in the ancient Near East is not only patriarchal, it's paternalistic. So it's based on the father. Mm. And in this story, the father is presented as being weak and as being in a compromising position. And the opportunity then is for the children mm. to model some behavior for the father. And I think mm. often as parents, we, we tend to forget that modeling happens both ways. And so one of the things that my wife has taught me to do as, as we've navigated the difficulties of bringing up children that we want to have a voice and we want to, to be self-differentiated mm -hmm. is that often we need to allow their behavior to model us as well. Um, and I think this is this is an opportunity. It's a prime opportunity for Ham to model mm. some behavior of grace yeah. uh, toward, towards Noah. And instead, sadly, uh, he weaponizes yeah. his shame. I, I caught a picture of you and your wife and your son the other day 
in worship, I have to I have to say this. So there I was in the front row and I'm seeing Miguel and his wife Linda and they were just passionately singing, holding their son. And it was just beautiful because you see here a family models to mm -hmm. their child. Hey, we worship the Lord mm -hmm. and this is what we do together. Yeah. And it was just such a beautiful picture and image. So I want to give you props, oh, brother. Thank keep you it, that. keep it going, man. Phil, thank you for that. We actually attended that service, and this is why I'm I'm learning as much from my kids as I'm trying to teach them. Yeah. Uh, because in that particular, we were in that service because Micah prefers uh, the more upbeat music yeah, that yeah. Uh, that you guys listen to in your anthem service. Yeah. And so we go there pr primarily for the worship uh -huh. um, and the music. Uh, and uh, you know this. I I always used to tell people before, uh, particularly before my son discovered that he had a passion for music, that contemporary modern uh, worship music wasn't my cup of tea. Sure. Well, you know what? After seeing how it touches and it moves my son, that type, the same same songs do something for me. Mm. And so that's an example of my son modeling mm. and then broadening. My wow. View. Intergenerational mm -hmm. experience. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. That's cool. What else do we get out of this idea of cursing and blessing now um, with, with this story? What, what else emerges for you when you see, Hey, cursed is ham, but blessed are his brothers. It, it, I guess I'm troubled at times when I think about this story because Cursing and blessing and biblical mm -hmm. ideas. I mean, it was something that would sit with you for life. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, cursed are you? When Joseph was passing, he kind of gave these mm -hmm. blessings to, or his father was pa passing, he gave blessings to all the brothers. Mm -hmm. And there some got these preferred blessings mm -hmm. and others didn't. I mean, that stuff stays with you for mm -hmm. your life. You know, these were ways that they would share this with their children. Oh, wow, we were cursed mm -hmm. because of what my father did. Mm -hmm. Well, in essence, then, since I'm cursed already, I might as well mm. live into that. Mm -hmm. And I guess I want to speak to that for a moment. I think God gives us also the opportunity for each one of us to choose, mm -hmm. to break generational curses, mm -hmm. uh, to break these patterns of behavior that lead towards just an unhappy, unhealthy, and a sinful way of mm -hmm. doing life. And so if in your family right now you're seeing in any way there is some form of just negative behavior that's going on, take the opportunity to reflect, what is it in my family that really, it just seems to be repeated. My uncles, generations of other family members has, what is it that I can think through and work on that would be helpful for me to just break? It needs to stop in this generation. Mm -hmm. So I just want to encourage our viewers today, think through some of those things and process that. That I think is really powerful. And I think that's something that we need to remember, uh, that to have a particular context be your reality now does not mean that you have to be a prisoner of that context forever. Yeah. That's the beauty of scripture. I think, yeah. I think, yes, scripture has this language of, hey, you will be cursed and you will, will be blessed. But scripture also has stories, numerous stories of people that take these curses mm. and say, it's, it ends with me. Um, during the post-exilic, during the post-exilic uh, period, uh, Israel gets into this really unhealthy headspace where there's a lot of exogamy. So there's a lot of anger and resistance towards people that come from uh, the outside, so mm. foreigners. And there's even uh, prophetic dictums that say, hey, if you married a foreign woman and you have foreign children, you need to divorce them and let them go. Wow. And into that story, into that cultural milieu, there's a story that emerges that begins to be widely read. And that's the story of Ruth. And so you have kind of this story that says, yes, that might be the case sometimes, but yeah. it's not the case always. always. Yeah. And so yeah. I think what you're trying to say and what I would heartily agree with is that this curse that is befallen Canaan and later Canaan's descendants 
can be broken mm. and actually is broken mm. uh, because the primary piece where Christendom took a stronghold wasn't with the descendants of the Semitic nations. Uh, it was with the descendants of Ham. Mm. Uh, and so we are living, breathing examples mm. of general generational curses being broken. being broken. Yeah, that's beautiful. So the Tower of Babel, Philip, um, switching, you have this, stories. switching yeah. stories, we have this, this course, and then um, chapter 10 deals kind of with this table of generations mm -hmm. that begins to move the focus of the story from individuals into nations and peoples. Yeah. And we begin to ask the question, what do people do when they organize? How do people mm, move? How mm, do societal mm. systems and structures operate? And they operate in an interesting way. Verse 3 of chapter 11, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make our names for our, a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Mm -hmm. Now, I know uh, that one of our traditional interpretations of this is that they are making the tower to escape the potential of another flood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that might be the case. I wasn't there. I wasn't part of those discussions. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Yeah. The text, however, tells us that the primary driving force is that they don't want to be forgotten, that they want to make mm. a name for themselves, yeah, that yeah, we right. want to build this monument to our ingenuity, our, our glory. strength, our glory. Yeah. Is that how societies operate typically? Mm. Is that mm. kind of inherent to human beings, kind of this mm. desire to build ourselves yeah. up oh, yeah. and to build our own name? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think there are moments in my life that I struggle mm -hmm. with that. I, I want to be known for something mm -hmm. i want to create an impact that's remembering oh the legacy of philip mm -hmm. you know and these are the moments as a pastor you you look back and you reflect on like oh man i'm not so proud of that mm -hmm. moment why am i seeking my own glory in mm -hmm. any way there's no need for that right and so these people were falling prey to the first sin recorded you could say mm -hmm. in all of the universe with Satan's own pride, Isaiah 14. Oh, you desire to be mm -hmm. of higher than the highest. You know, and it's it's one of those moments that I think we need to all reflect on personally. Mm. When you let your pride get the best of yourself, the promise of scripture is pride comes before the fall. Mm. And that is lived out here perfectly. Then verse five, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they do can be impossible to them. Let's go down and confuse the language so they will not understand each other. And some people are like, wait, so is God stopping ingenuity, mm -hmm. innovation, progressing? You know, no. What he's stopping is a people who are completely arrogant and full of mm -hmm. themselves from continuing mm -hmm. to spread on the earth. Because that's exactly what was started with why the flood happened mm -hmm. in the first place, a people who let their furthest desires take them to a violent, arrogant, and terrible place. And so to stop that, he brings in confusion. But our lesson brought this out so nicely. Uh, I'd love to talk about actually the blessing out of that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if people capture this. If we read Genesis one twenty-eight. Okay, Miguel, you read Genesis 1.28. I'm going to read Genesis 9.1 and 11.8 and 9. So let's capture what happened at the very beginning here for a moment. What was the command that God gave Adam and Eve? Oh, but this is going to be good. This is going to be good because that's it's like we're dancing simpatico because that's exactly where I was going to go, Phil. Okay, okay. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in 
number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish yes. of the sea and the birds of, in the yes. sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God gives that same command to Noah after mm -hmm. he begins, you could say virtually again, as if he had started over. 9-1, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth. Boom, same thing. And now just this last thing in 11, 8, and 9 going on a bit further. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth mm -hmm. and they stopped building the city. That is why it's called Babel because from the Lord's confusion, the language of the whole world, from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Mm. His intentional idea was always Adam and Eve, fill the earth, mm -hmm. go, move beyond it, subdue all of it. Telling Noah and his sons, same thing. Do that. Mm. They didn't they didn't do that. No. And so I think that is a beautiful example <clears throat> of God working out his plans in spite yeah. of our be best effort to thwart those plans. Yeah. The other thing that, that just came to mind as I was reading this is for those of you who don't know, I am a very big J.R.R. Tolkien fan. And Tolkien and C.S. Lewis are contemporaries. Yeah. And they're both penning these long mythical novels that create these really intricate worlds mm -hmm. to tell some to tell a story about a deeper reality. Mm -hmm. uh, for Tolkien, it has to do with uh, The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings. For C.S. Lewis, obviously, it's about uh, the story that happens in Narnia. But one of the things that I love about Tolkien's approach to this world that he creates is the relationship that he understands human beings ought to have with the world. Mm. So I want us to, to just linger on verse three for a second. And remember, uh, Phil just pointed us to this reality. God's plans for us will be fulfilled, sometimes even in spite of our best efforts oh, wow. to thwart them. Oh, wow. So they said to each other, come, let us make brick, bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of, tar, of stone and tar for mortar. So you have kind of these first inklings of industrialization. Mm. And the point is made very subtly in scripture, much more clearly in Tolkien's writing, that sometimes industrialization forces us to look at the world uh. as an asset that we can exploit. Mm. So instead of just looking at the rocks that we had naturally and building and tilling the land as we were supposed to do. Now I'm not saying building cities is wrong. I'm just saying, <laughs> notice what notice what the story is trying to say. Adam, Eve, and Noah, they have this plan, this calling to yeah. be one with the earth, yeah. to be men of the soil, to be women of the soil, mm -hmm. to have their hands dirty yeah. in the ground in the yeah. same way that Yahweh has his dirties, has his hands dirty. At this moment, what they start doing is they want to build mm -hmm. and they want to use their environment in order to, to buttress their own name. They want to mm -hmm. exploit their environment. And so I think very early on, and this is something that Adventists have always been at the forefront and I wish we could recover this do this theology of stewardship of the world this theology mm. that makes us one with the world this theology that says to subdue the world doesn't mean to exploit it to subdue the world means to exist in the mm. world with a relationship mm. of harmony mm. and mutuality mm. wow because it seems like this is a problem wow. in genesis chapter chapter wow. uh, 10 and 10, i mean 11. that that applies in so many of our theological themes in adventism you know, the Sabbath for one is mm -hmm. that. Let us not exploit not only the earth, but also people too. Mm -hmm. Hence the idea of resting from the days of shopping and going out. Mm -hmm. Hey, let me let those people rest as well. Let me not exploit workers who are trying to toil mm -hmm. for every penny. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, a beautiful thing. And I think Adventism does capture that in so many of our theological doctrines and beliefs. Yeah, this idea of being one with the created order, and mm -hmm. that has to do with uh, people. So the yeah. oneness of, among people, the idea of identifying with others, as you mentioned, the idea of maybe not going to a store on Sabbath or to a grocery store on Sabbath or to eat 
lunch on Hospitality Lane if you know where that is in Loma Linda on Sabbath. Not because it's a sin. See, we, we've gotten on the wrong track here when we think we don't do it because it's a sin. What Adventist actually says, as you've mentioned so beautifully, is because to say no to the culture of consumption is to stand in solidarity with those who are barely getting by. Mm. To say no to the culture of exploitation means mm. uh, of mm. the earth and mm. our natural mm. resources means to stand on the side <clears throat> of a planet that, as Sister White says, also groans out for redemption. Mm. Mm. And so mm. it's mm. this idea deeply rooted in Adventism of oneness. Yeah. And when we when we leave that idea behind of oneness and harmony with the created order, what follows typically is confusion. Mm. It's confusion as we participate in this, in an economic and social system that says your value is based on what, on you, what produce. you produce. Yeah. And it's confusion when you look at the world around you as something that you can exploit to yeah, amplify yeah, your production. Yeah. I think we have to always go back to our identity being rooted in Christ. Mm. That has to be essential. And within family systems, that should be there. Because sometimes families do not value certain members of the family because they're not contributing in the mm -hmm. same way. But love cannot be something bought or sold. Mm. Uh, love has to be given freely because that is what Christ gives to us. We always are sons and daughters. That never changes no matter how much we produce or how much we don't, how much we mess up and how much we live into a beautiful way of a Christian life. Mm -hmm. Identity is rooted in Christ, solid in his love. And that should be the way we then move and, and kind of dance, I guess you could say, with society around us. So exploitation of the earth, or exploitation of others is antithetical to the gospel. Oh, wow. That's powerfully said. Um, not as powerful as the idea of two Adventist ministers dancing, <laughs> but powerful nonetheless. And I think that the text bears that out, Phil, it, exactly what you said. Um, it says here, if as one people, this is uh, verse six, which you read, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, namely to build mm -hmm, the city, mm -hmm. then nothing they plan to do will be impossible mm. for them. Ooh. And so you're asking the question, is God stopping ingenu ingenuity and innovation? And you quickly said, no, what God is stopping is a self-absorbed, obsessed yeah. society. Yeah. Yeah. And here's, I think, where that is so powerful. You've talked uh, to us, I think, very powerfully about being grounded in Christ. I like to call that the Jesus ethic. Mm, yeah. And the Jesus ethic is a little different than the ethic that is pervasive in the world in which we live today. Uh, scientific uh, circles are always asking the question, can we do this? Mm. The question of should we do it or the ethics behind right. innovation right. are seldomly asked. Right. And so the Jesus ethic says innovation is important, but innovation needs to further a mission. Mm. And so building or doing something just because we can mm. isn't a good re enough reason to do it. The mm. question is, should we do this mm. based on the ethic of Jesus and then and once that question is answered, then we proceed with mm, innovation. Mm. And it seems like that's the break that God is yeah, trying to yeah. instill. Not yeah. just, hey, the, you can do anything you want, yeah. but rather, hey, you need to consider yes. the yes. benefits and the ethics behind yeah. these creations yeah. or these constructions yeah. or oh, these acts. Absolutely. And I think if you were to reverse this idea, so they're doing something for their own glory, but what if they got together and they did something under God's authority, mm -hmm. his vision, and mm -hmm. for his glory, mm -hmm. nothing could stop them. Imagine. And Jesus would get behind Imagine. them pushing for. So when we think about mission, evangelism, really reaching people for the kingdom, oh man, this excites me when a church wakes up to what they've been called to do, to reach not only this generation, but the one to come after them, when they're all motivated, moving in that same direction. Brother, wow. And this Woo! is, Phil, this is spirit-led because this idea of evangelism and Babel and nothing being able to stop mm. them is actually biblical. Hmm. So think about Acts chapter 2 
where the where what you have in the sermon at Pentecost is an actual reversal of what happens at the Tower of Babel. Oh, interesting. So at Babel, oh, you have God good. saying, "Let us confuse all their languages yeah, yeah, yeah. because they're pursuing something for their own name yes, and for their own yes. good." Acts chapter two says, "Ah, oh, let us now unite their yes. languages in the Spirit for the purpose of mission, for the purpose yeah. of evangelism, yes. for the purpose of intergenerational yes. communal." connections oh and so it's not the it's not the that god needed a fancy way to get us to speak french or yeah. uh, serbo-croatian or yeah. spanish or any yeah. other language yeah. it's that god is always invested mm. in in us realizing that when human beings when groups and communities come together there is nothing mm. they cannot do mm. the question that needs to be asked isn't can we do it but rather should, should we, we do, do it? it and i would add what is God's plan? What is mm. his vision? How can we get alongside that so that we can further the kingdom mm -hmm. forward and beyond? I wonder if we asked ourselves as church pastors right now, what do we hope for our church members to get behind mm -hmm. that we might together in unison be moving mm. in one direction in a way in which the Holy Spirit is kind of pushing us forward because it's his vision, what would that be? What would you encourage kind of people looking on right now? That is that is a question that we struggle with all the time. And you know, Phil, in our team, we talk about this great responsibility that we feel as pastors here in our church. Um, we have people that watch us in these remote places uh, around the world where it's difficult to get to a church or perhaps... Yeah the church they have is, is difficult to put a service together. Yeah. And so people always ask, well, what is it like mm. to minister and to work and to do life in a place like Loma Linda University Church where there are so many resources mm. and so many mm. teams and so mm. many close mm. relationships? And what I would say is, if we're doing this simply to build up our portfolio so that people recognize us on the street, so that we get more views on social media or on the internet so that we become famous, then we're pursuing the wrong thing. Absolutely. I think what we would like here in our local church, because after all, we are a local community, mm -hmm. is to train and equip people, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. Paul says, for yeah. the work of mission. Yes. And we see yes. our time together here as Abs a mission. Absolutely. It's a mission trying to resource you yeah. who are maybe disconnected from a community to begin to re-encounter scripture. Yeah. Yeah. It's a mission for you. And that's why we we crave your comments and your, your conversation because it connects us to you mm. in a very mm. real way. And you out there or our mission. And mm, so mm. I would love the Adventist church to get together in our as our local church has done and say, how can we leverage the stewardship of these resources that God yeah. has gifted us yeah. Yeah. to share with people the story yes. of a God who wants nothing more yeah. than to fulfill our yeah. dreams. Amen. I would add one one thing to this and that is <clears throat> because we are a local church ministering on a college campus a graduate study campus, a hospital system here. We have a lot of Adventists here. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say this with a caveat, but I'm going to say this first, okay? I don't believe we're necessarily called to live in these Adventist meccas mm. and stay and die here. While some may, I hope it's because God called you to stay mm -hmm. and to die mm -hmm. here. But the call is always to go out. Mm -hmm. The dispersion that God did was because, hey, I need the earth to, to be, be filled. To be filled. Mm -hmm. and, but now as the earth is filled, we still need people to go out. Why? Exactly what you said. To be the conduit of God's glory around the earth. And, and that is a difficult space to be in. Um, but I think every one of us can do it where we are. But some of us need to recognize we might be called to go and mm -hmm. go with God's blessing, be a conduit of his spirit there. And, and truly... Make disciples there. Mm. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. They worshiped, some doubted. Jesus still spoke and said to no matter who you are, no matter what uh, growth pattern you're on, if you're struggling or you're a passionate believer, go therefore, make disciples, mm. baptize them, teaching them all things I've commanded you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Mm. That is the call for all of us. 
that's what I respect about your ministry so much, Phil. Um, a lot of people uh, on a college campus, and I see your passion for, for our students and our healthcare professionals here, a lot of people would believe that our job is to compete for, the, for time in schedules that are really busy. But that's not the model that you have approached to youth ministry and to young adult ministry in this church. The model that I see you living out with your young adults is one in which we're going to have you for as long as you're in this community in order to train you and equip you and help you decide mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. define what God's purpose and call mm -hmm, for your life mm -hmm. is. Because at some point, you're going to have to go out into the world. Yeah, yeah. That, I think, ought to transcend simple young adult mm people or students that are that are on our campus. I think that needs to be applicable to us all. Mm -hmm. That Loma Linda University Church is a place that seeks to resource you, that yeah. seeks to train you, yeah. that seeks to equip you, yeah. that seeks to listen as you find God's purpose for you. And, and then, then you, you know go. you go out and yeah. you might be asking, but I'm living in Wyoming an hour away from any other Adventist church. And I would tell you Invite somebody to watch with you. Mm -hmm. Have little watch parties. We'd love to hear if you're doing that, if you're watching with other people, how that's going. And we'd love to continue those conversations because, as we said, you are our mission. Phil, this has been a wonderful conversation. It has. It has. Um, let's I always know that when Pastor Philip is here, we're going to talk about evangelism, which excites me. So won't you close us? <laughs> yeah, as we, let's do it. As we, let's do it. Jesus, thank you so much for being the God who speaks into our lives, affirms us for being sons and daughters. No matter our past, no matter our present situation, we're always rooted in what you say about us, and that is you are loved and you are my children. Mm -hmm. So God, I pray everyone would leave here today knowing that first and foremost, and then out of that, out of that love and compassion that we feel from you, Father, may we share that with the world around us. May we be people who bring order out of spaces of disorder, that bring hope in spaces of shame, that mm -hmm. bring blessing in tarnished moments and uh, seasons. God, may we be those who you remember and say, welcome home, my good and faithful servant. Lord, encourage each one that is watching here today to be a conduit of you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 And remember, today and always, you don't have to make a name for yourself. You already have a name, and that is beloved daughter and son of God. See you next week.